Given the rich history of symbolism of the fish, both in politics and religion, it's no wonder that fishy foods are a major staple of the human diet. Thanks to a topic suggestion by Robin Ove, today we'll dive deep into some of the rich history of fish stews and soups. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm faring well. Thank you for asking. How are you and where are you? Doing good. We are back in Arizona, so we're hanging out with my dad, getting some projects done for him before it gets unbearably hot here. Good. We're doing well here in Washington. You know, had a, had a little bit of a loss in the family recently. If those of you who follow along the As We Journal probably saw a note that one of our elderly cats passed away last week. And uh, that's been a hard row for us to hoe because we love our cats. And But loss is part of life and we are doing okay. We're healing. That's where we're at. But otherwise, starting to enjoy spring. My cherry tree in my backyard is starting to blossom. So I've got my own personal cherry blossoms going on here. Although unbearably hot doesn't even begin to enter into our vocabulary. <laughs> we're still rocking the 50s over here. Kind of envious of your sunshine, but... Oh, I have to say, I'm actually super envious of the cherry blossoms. I saw an article about the blossoms. Actually, I think it was a gal who was doing a photo walk at the UW and all of the cherry blossoms there. And it was just beautiful. I missed that a lot. It is one of the things that I love the most about my home. The fact that we have this very old cherry tree in the backyard and we do get fruit it's um, not particularly great. It's, we don't get enough of it, and certainly it's incredibly tart, but it's nice to be able to go out into your own backyard and pick some cherries off the tree and enjoy them. For sure. And I have strawberries, too, so between those two, it's a, it can be a nice spring harvest. Exactly. So we have an interesting topic today that was suggested to us by Robin Ove, and we are going to be looking at some of the history and cultures around fish stews and soups. And... I wanted to actually get us started with a little bit of a history of fishing itself. Fish are a huge part of the human diet. I can't think of a culture anywhere in the world, from very snowy to even very hot, that don't incorporate fish into the diet in some way or manner. And it could be anything from baked to salted to dried, paste, sauces, obviously fish stews and soups. So I wanted to kind of see if I could take us back to just how we started even thinking about trying to eat these creatures. And to do that, I think it's important that we imagine a time when the primary focus of your day is just merely trying to find enough food to eat to sustain your life. Now, remember, this is not necessarily like a long, healthy life. In fact, I think if you even saw 40, you were ancient and like a very lucky person indeed. When we talk about early human food, 
hunting and gathering is what we think of the most, I think. And hunting for large game could easily provide enough protein to sustain a seasonally nomadic community for a couple of months. And then gathering, of course, provided much needed nutrition and variety, at least in smaller amounts. But we were nomadic humans. We didn't really settle down for very long in one spot, possibly in part because we might risk exhausting the local food supply. And so just for a minute or two, though, I'd like to discuss how humanity ended up adapting its tools and techniques to capture fish. And obviously this differs from the other hunting and gathering techniques that we know about. But what I found really cool was that there has been a steady progression of development of human thought that grew sophisticated as our brains continue to develop. Protein helps build healthy Mm -hmm. brains. So you actually see that our success at Finding and capturing food is what enabled us to be smart enough to find and capture food. The first fishermen likely went after slow-moving fish with clubs. They created small dams to trap small fish, or they just harvested mollusks and shellfish at low tide along the shoreline or river, depending. Perhaps the success of trapping with bait, things like hares and rabbits and squirrels and small animals... That possibly inspired the development of lures and hooks for fishing. The earliest hooks were probably thorns from plants, but Ray Tannehill in the book The History of Food describes an early fishing system using a fish gorge, which was essentially a piece of wood, stone, or bone that was fashioned into a wedge. And this was covered with bait and secured to some kind of line. We're talking like vine or a bit of fiber. The wedge would lodge in the fish's throat and you would then pull the lines in order to bring the fish in. Later on, humans learned how to fashion hooks and spears and harpoons, as well as canoes and rafts that allowed us to venture even further away from shore. And therefore we were able to capture larger sea creatures. And a fish and mermaids and (laughs) leviathans, the the big stuff. By 8,000 BC, says Tannehill, humans had also now developed fishing nets made out of twisted fiber or hair. These are a lot of the techniques that we still use today, although things are a lot more automated and fancy. Mm -hmm. There's a bewildering array of flies, hooks, floats, wedges. But what was interesting I found is that the the wedge, that original fish gorge wedge, can still be used today and often is actually still used today. It just was incredibly effective. Time tested, as they say. So we also see and hear a lot about how the invention of farming has affected the development of human culture. Suddenly we're staying in place, we're planting crops, we've got cycles going along with the seasons. There is also evidence that fishing and fishing culture influenced the innovation of human settlement as well as farming. And earlier I was reading about the community of Lepensky Vir, and this is an archaeological site within Serbia, or modern-day Serbia, that was a semi-permanent settlement. And it was a place that some historians and archaeologists describe as the first city of the world entire. And this community was successful in being developed and sustained, partly because fishing was its major source for food. So I'm going to gloss over a huge amount of history here because I don't, I don't want to belabor us talking about fishing. But suffice it to say that as long as there was an accessible body of water with fish in it, people have had tools and techniques to capture fish and then, of course, eat those fish. 
And once caught, we found all kinds of ingenious ways to cook it. And so today we're going to talk about a few of those soups and stews that are fish-based. That's so interesting. I think it's so important to understand the history behind the foods that we're consuming and that we're talking about. I love understanding how we started to catch fish in the first place. I think that it's important to know that there was some innovation and ingenuity that went into that gathering of those types of fish. So before we jump into the various types of the fish stews that we're going to be talking about today, I wanted to start with a quote that I found on the Our State website. A soup pot contains multitudes, not just from our gardens and pantries, but from our cultures and memories too. When we talk about fisherman's stew, there is a multitude of recipes that can be classified as a fisherman's stew. There's not just a single recipe. We've got chiapino, bouillabaisse, bermuda chowder, clam chowder, lobster bisque, salmon chowder, fish head curry, wash tub stew, and so many more from around the world. A couple of the things that these stews have in common is that the stews themselves were created to celebrate the catch of the day, which unequivocally represents the region from which they originated. So we've got Chiapino having its origins in the West Coast, specifically San Francisco, Bouillabaisse. To be authentic, this dish must be made in Provence with a fish known as scorpion fish. And my must be was in air quotes because <laughs> we know how I feel about that word authentic. And if you don't, DM me, I'll let you know. <laughs> and we have clam chowders. And they are such a great example of this regional representation. New England clam chowders are creamy and velvety, while Manhattan clam chowders feature tomato broth. And those two will go head to head. And boy, do they and have they throughout history. <laughs> People will fight. They will over their chowder. Yes. We've got Menorcan clam chowder from, from St. Augustine, Florida which is similar to the Manhattan clam chowder, but it has datil peppers added, which is a pepper mm. that's grown in St. Augustine. And then there's Rhode Island clam chowder, known for its clear broth and made with quahog clams, which are native to that area. Or cobble clam chowder that's inspired by flavors from south of the border, chipotle, jalapenos, beans. But the two that I really want to focus on today for the sake of time are chiapino and washtub stew. And the history that I found on these stews really brings the quote that I started with into clear focus. So, Chiapino. There's varying information on when and where Chiapino was developed. Some sources indicate that it was introduced during the late 1800s. Some say it was the early 1900s. Some sources indicate that the soup was made on the fishing boats because they didn't have refrigeration. If you haven't listened to Our Kitchen Technology, episode 38... Listen to that because it's got great information about how refrigeration has changed what we eat, how we eat, and how we store foods. Absolutely. Others say that the soup was made on the wharf after the boats had docked. The name itself has several origin stories, but it most likely can be attributed to the Genoese fish stew called chiapine. It was the fisherman who immigrated from Genoa that brought the flavors of this stew. What struck me most was the method in which this stew was developed. Whether it was on the boat or in the wharf, this soup was intended to be eaten in community and with 
gusto, as you would expect. It's thought that whatever was left over from the day's catch would be added to a communal pot set over a fire to be enjoyed at the end of a long day on the water. Not only do you have this concept of being in community while eating, but the dish itself was a culmination of hard work, gratitude, and generosity. I also came across this tale of Nona Rose, who continued to run Alioto's restaurant on the wharf in San Francisco after her husband died in the early 1900s. And Alioto's is an icon on the wharf. It's the oldest restaurant on the wharf. It's still run by the original Alioto family. So if you find yourself in San Francisco and have a hankering for Chiapino, you have to check it out. And if you do, make sure you tag us in your post. Now, it's said that Rose would put a bib on her son and tell him, if it doesn't splatter on your shirt, you aren't doing it right. I'm not sure why she put the bib on if she wanted him to splatter on the shirt, but that's the story. So apparently the amount of stains on your shirt after enjoying this fisherman's stew is an indication of how much you enjoyed it. So you like really should be getting in there splashing around a lot. Then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that this stew is probably one of the stews that really employs a lot of seafood. A chiapino has some type of a white fish in it. It can have clams, mussels, crabs, scallops, shrimp. You could see why, you know, you would have stains mm-hmm. all over because you have all sorts of textures that really lend themselves to splashing a lot of flavorful <laughs> broth on you. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I appreciate that there's sort of like a hidden metaphor here of a fish flopping around yeah. and churning the water and that you evoking that as you're eating your chiapino, that the spirit of the fish is rising to the surface. Absolutely. I love that. So the next stew that I want to talk about is wash tub stew. It's also a fish stew, but this one originates on the opposite coast and more inland. Originating in North Carolina on the Noose River, this stew is a celebration of abundance, community, and being. This tradition started on the banks of the Noose River Basin using what was caught in the day's nets. And back in the olden days, the cooking vessel of choice was a wash tub. Today, you're more likely to find a cast iron cauldron over the fire, not always, but the name wash tub stew remains. These stews are so much more than a dish created from the day's catch. They're very ritualized and symbolize region, the value, and the reverence of ideals of the people that continued this tradition. And again, the stew is made for crowds, much like the Chiapino, families, neighbors, congregations, unpretentious but rich in revelry, drinking, and socializing. Just an overall Mm -hmm. enjoyment of life. And as I mentioned, there's a ritualization around this dish. There are no fancy schmancy side dishes. This is really about the stew. White bread from the store, saltine crackers, cornbread, and cola are allowed. Paper bowls only. Nothing that is porcelain or glass or representative of any station in life other than paper. Yeah. There are only nine ingredients. Bacon, onions, potatoes, white fish, Water, salt and pepper, tomato paste or tomato sauce, and eggs. And these are layered in the pot and cooked until it's just right. The very last item that goes in is the eggs. The cardinal rule is there is no stirring ever. Hmm. 
So these recipes and the methods are passed down through families. And again, it's like, you know, when it's done, when you see it, when you smell Mm -hmm. it, there are obviously recipes that are written down. But really, this is all about that connecting with your food kind of cooking. And wow. really, all of this ritualization seems in line with the state's motto of esse quam vidiri, which means to be rather than to seem. Hmm. It's a simple dish that is what it is, served from vessels that are common and equalizing. Nothing and no one is asked to compete with the main dish. All that's required is for you to be in community, enjoy the stew, and the company. So back to the quote. A soup pot contains multitudes, not just from our gardens and pantries, but from our cultures and memories too. And I would have to add communities to this quote to just really round it out. Yeah. Wow. I cannot agree more. And what's interesting is that that theme of community is true in some of the other dishes that I looked at for this episode as well. I wanted to talk a lot about bouillabaisse. And then I'm also going to touch a little bit on chowder. And you're going to hear a lot of the same themes that you've been describing with Chiapino and wash tubs do as well. You know, I've been going through my family history and I found that I have an extremely strong French genetic background. It's like 50% of my DNA is French in origin. And this wasn't a huge surprise to me based on what I know about my family tree, but it kind of makes me wonder how much it actually affects some of my preferences. So I joke a lot about my French stomach because I love to eat a late dinner. I eat later than most people tend to eat their stuff. And I have preferences that really favor Mediterranean flavors. And I've discovered that huge part of my family tree comes from southern France. So bouillabaisse was an interesting topic to me because this is what I think of as a quintessential south of France dish. And as you said, to the point where it's only really authentic if it's being made in Provence or near Provence. And that's where my family's from. So here's my take on this famous stew, bouillabaisse. And we're going to have a link to an episode of the Julia Child in The French Chef in which she describes bouillabaisse as, quote, a loud, colorful, authoritative, flavorful brew, just like the Marseille themselves. End quote. And she's not wrong. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy the episode. It's free to watch. It's a sheer delight because she takes you to the fish market in Marseille. This will really help you get a sense of the sights, the sounds, the smells, even though you can't, we don't have smell vision of what it would be like to create a bouillabaisse. Unlike the creamier side of the fish chowders that we've come to associate with, say, a New England clam chowder or cod chowder, bouillabaisse has flavors resplendent with olive oil onion, leek, garlic, fennel, and then later tomatoes and saffron, a a must-have as part of bouillabaisse. But it didn't start like that, but I'll get there. This dish is believed to have originated from the Phocians, and these are ancient Greek people who founded Marseille around 600 BC. Marseille itself is well-defined by its fishing ports. There's the old port and now the new port. And so like the washtub stew and like Chiapino, it's likely that this dish was developed as a way to utilize rockfish, scorpionfish, and shellfish that just didn't sell well at market. Restaurants would have a hard time serving these to patrons because they're too bony. And so these types of fish were destined for the stew pot. And bouillabaisse itself earned its name from its method of preparation, 
much like cassoulet, also a southern French dish in origin, is basically named after the vessel in which it was cooked. Bouillabaisse is prepared in stages. First, the fish are scaled and cleaned with seawater, and then chopped but kept in large chunks with bones intact. Aromatics are slowly browned in olive oil before fish slices are added, largest to smallest, and then everything is covered in water with salt and pepper plus fennel, saffron, and bouquet garni. The pot is brought to a boil and then lowered to simmer. The word bouillabaisse derives from the Provençal Buya abasto, and I'm probably hugely mispronouncing that, but that's my best guess. And this means when the pot boils, lower the fire. So boy, boil, abaso, abaso, lower the heat effectively. Now, the most traditional way that I read of serving bouillabaisse is not actually like in a big kind of bowl and it's got a lot of stuff going on. But the idea is that you you present the fish in a platter on the side, and sometimes that is also served with fried potatoes. And then you have the broth in which the fish was cooked, and that served extremely hot. So at some point, you got to raise that temperature back (laughs) up again. And with thick slices of bread spread with roux, and that is basically a, a very rustic mayonnaise made with egg yolk, crushed garlic, saffron, and olive oil. Again, very rustic, very fresh and although tomato is a well-known component of bouillabaisse today, it was not an integral part of the dish until the 17th century because tomatoes weren't introduced into Europe from the Americas until that point. The, the thing that I thought was interesting, too, that I found was there is a legend that bouillabaisse is the dish, or at least very akin to the dish, that the Roman goddess Venus fed to her husband Vulcan when she wanted to go step out on the town without him because it put him to sleep. Why it put him to sleep, I really don't know, but maybe it was heavy and he got sleepy. According to a New York Times article that I found from 2019, ordering bouillabaisse in Marseille is going to peg you as a tourist. So even though it's this very traditional dish, it is not actually meant for show consumption. It's not haute cuisine, and it was never meant to be a restaurant dish. This is just a true fisherman stew. I loved that you talked about this being a rustic dish. And that was one thing that I came across in my research, too. It was a rustic dish made by rustic people. To your point, it wasn't haute cuisine. It was a food to help sustain a culture and a community and also celebrate the abundance that they were able to gather. Absolutely. And I was reminded a lot of a conversation that I had with Andrew Scrivani back when we did our advent calendar and we talked about the Feast of Seven Fishes. And he was talking about the origin of that tradition, that it was a celebration of the foods that were there in that community and that folks from these regions came to the United States and settled. And with that brought this tradition, but they changed it up based on what was available to them on the eastern seaboard. And I loved especially when Andrew was describing how he would eat with his family And then he would run over to his friend's house and eat with them. And it was a completely different spread and set of dishes. And that now as an adult, he has his own twist on making it a multicultural meal because his wife is from a different culture. And it just was really fascinating. The other thing that Andrew and I discussed, and I wanted to bring it up because you um, had mentioned this idea of authenticity. And it's something that it's a concept we face a lot when we're talking about food Mm -hmm. and appropriation. What Andrew described was rather than say authentic, let's maybe say accurate. 
if we're actually talking about having something that is accurate to the culture from which it came or accurate to the geography which it came, then accuracy is the better word than authenticity. Authenticity has this huge baggage that comes with it. Because unless you're actually cooking with the ingredients from the region that a dish originated in and or in that style, really never going to have an authentic dish, but you can get accurate with the way that it was intended to be made. You can be accurate to the spirit of the dish. So he convinced me to use accurate rather than authentic. And that's actually something that I'm finding is really pertinent when we're talking about these fish stews, because the fish themselves, you're not supposed to import something from Australia to make a clam chowder, right? Like the chowders that we think of, particularly the New England chowders that we think of, are meant to be made with the fish that you catch off of the Atlantic seaboard. That's not supposed to be imported. Therefore, it's not supposed to be frozen. I think that's an amazing point. We have talked at length about the word authentic. And Mm -hmm. I love the word accurate. But I also think that it's really important that we understand what the experience is that we're after. If we are after the experience of imbibing in a culture, a community, a dish in that location, that's one thing. If we want to be able to bring those flavors to our home when we don't live in those areas, I think it's an entirely different Mm -hmm. thing. And I think that's a fair thing to want to do. That experience is also authentic to what you're doing. It may not be accurate and it probably Mm -hmm. will taste entirely different from having that experience in that place, but I think it's still valuable. Absolutely. And thank you for the wonderful lead into a little bit more discussion about chowder, (laughs) because the chowder is 100 percent that dish. When you look at it, when you think about it, you can very obviously see how it has come to the shores of the United States from elsewhere, but from everywhere elsewhere, because we're talking Mm. about sailors, we're talking about fishermen, we're talking about Human migration. Chowder already existed in England and France, at least before it came to the U.S. I'm I'm sure it's elsewhere as well. I mean, Chiapino and Bouillabaisse are practically identical, except that they use different ingredients. And the layering that actually also can go into a chowder, this is the same as the washtub stew. I mean, these dishes are not that far removed from each other, but there are small variations that happen when people cook, right. because we cook to taste, we cook to what we have available. It's just not that cut and dry when it comes to food. Right. Now, I really wanted to touch on New England style clam or cod chowder, because I think we would miss out if we didn't go a little bit more deeply into this dish. As I've said, the chowder that we know today is a bit of an American invention, but it's also built on these fish stew traditions from England and France, as I've said. The term itself is a little bit obscure, but there's a really pretty story that chowder derives from the French word chaudron, which is a type of cooking stove. And we've talked about refrigeration, but don't forget, (laughs) in episode 38, we also talk about stoves. So while you're imagining cooking chowder, check out that episode. Another possible etymology for the word chowder could be from Quebecoise French, where chaudière means bucket, with the connotation that you're cooking and serving this chowder from some kind of bucket or large cauldron or large kind of cooking vessel. Actually, there's not like a very definitive origin for the word chowder or even what a chowder is, because 
as you pointed out, Leigh, there are a ton of variations on it. So when I talk about chowder, what I think of is that traditional New England chowder that is effectively clams, although that was not necessarily original to the dish. Potatoes, again, not necessarily (laughs) original to the dish. Cream, very much not original to the dish. And Quaker and Protestant New England chowder was just simply a healthy dish that provided sustenance of body and mind, a marker of hearth and home, community, family, and culture, and it was a dish not particularly prone to fanciful flavors or extravagant ingredients. It was very tried and true. It was very simple, wholesome, healthy. It was a community dish. The earliest citation that the Oxford English Dictionary gives for what we call American chowder, what we think of as an American version of chowder, comes from a journal kept by botanist Joseph Banks, and this is from 1766. He describes a dish which he believes, quote, is peculiar to this country, end quote, and its preparation as, quote, and I love this, when well made, a luxury that the rich, even in England, at least, in my opinion, might be fond of. It is a soup made with a small quantity of salt pork cut into small slices, a good deal of fish, and biscuit boiled for about an hour, end quote. According to the book 50 Chowders by Jasper White, The first and oldest known printed fish chowder recipe was in the Boston Evening Post from September 23rd, 1751. It describes a layered preparation for chowder, and it reads simply, quote, First, lay some onions to keep the pork from burning, because in chowder there cannot be turning. Then lay some pork in slices very thin, thus you in chowder must always begin. Next, lay some fish cut crossways, very nice, then season well with pepper, salt, and spice. Parsley, sweet majorum, savory, and thyme. Then biscuit necks, which must be soaked some time. Thus your foundation laid, you will be able to raise a chowder high as Tower of Babel. For by repeating or the same again, you may make a chowder for a thousand men. Last, a bottle of claret with water enow to smother them. You'll have a mess, which some call ominum gatherum, end quote. Wow. <laughs> that kind of goes back to our poem recipe from yeah. the women's suffrage. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a story poem about how to make chowder. I did want to touch on the clam in clam chowder. And I'm using a lot of terms interchangeably, and I'm sorry, not sorry for doing that. But it wasn't clam chowder always to begin with. Clams were not well known to white settlers in the Atlantic seaboard. It was definitely something that Native American people knew, celebrated, ate, used shells, very common. But it was not as well known for European settlers. So it took some time to get used to eating and incorporating them in stew. And from what I understand in my research, and there's links for this available in our show notes, at first it was fried, and then later the clams got adapted out into other things like clam chowder. What I did find interesting as well was before it was accepted as a reasonable thing to put into chowder to eat for humans, it was given to swine as a clean food that was easily and widely available. In closing on chowder, I I did want to leave with this early scene from Herman Melville's 1851 American classic, Moby Dick, and specifically the scene from Tripods, which is a chowder house in Nantucket, Massachusetts. And the crew is 
having a meal before they head out to go hunt for the Leviathan. Quote, A warm, savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me. It was made of small, juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded ship biscuit and salted pork cut up into little flakes, the whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and in particular, Queequeg seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition. When leaning back a moment and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's clam and cod announcement, I thought I would try a little experiment. Stepping to the kitchen door, I uttered the word cod with great emphasis and resumed my seat. In a few moments, the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and in good time, a fine cod chowder was placed before us. Fishiest of all fishy places was the tripods, which well deserved its name, for the pots there were always boiling chowders, chowder for breakfast, and chowder for dinner, and chowder for supper, until you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. End quote. Oh, I love that. But yeah, I did love that part about his description of being in the chowder house because I could practically smell it. And reading about chowders and the huge variety, and you've mentioned so many of them up at the top, whether they're made from a, a whitefish or cod or clam or lobster or whether it's from Maine or St. Augustine or Manhattan, as we talked about, back to that idea of it being an unpretentious, rustic dish that really just honors the fish catch. It's meant to not, not necessarily to have just the best of the best, but to really, if you've caught it, you're going to make use of it and not waste it. Yeah. And to me, that's that's an honorable dish to have. I agree. So thank you, Robin, for the suggestion. This was a really interesting sojourn to take today. And I have a much deeper appreciation for the assorted fish stews and eager to try out some bouillabaisse. I've never made it before. I'm not Actually, not that keen on fish, but I'm trying to I'm trying to improve. So I think I might honor my French ancestry. There you go, and uh, work up a bouillabaisse. That sounds delicious, actually. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our As We Eat community on Facebook. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode or any others. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us really super duper happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And Spotify now has a review function as well. Five stars, pretty please. Hooray! <laughs> We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take really tasty side trips through all sorts of topics, including vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and travel stops. We have four subscription tiers. We know that there's going to be one that's perfect for you. You can find all of this at asweeat.substack.com. Indeed. And just in case you weren't aware, you've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.
Ba-ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-